So, welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, August 26th in the year 2021, and this is the podcast, Get Smarter and Make Stuff. And today I am uh, really happy to welcome somebody uh, on the show that, uh, um, you know, we, I've talked a bunch with about making things, and in fact, we've been working together making a company, his company, in fact, for quite some time now, uh, and that would be James Avery. Welcome to the show, James. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. Yeah, no problem. So as I just vaguely alluded to there, you are actually my boss's boss. You are the, the CEO of Kevl, where I work. Um, but uh, beyond that, you're also a maker and a learner. And, uh, you know, you've you've made software, you've made things in wood. We've had a lot of conversations about about making things for fun and professionally and so forth. So I thought it'd be really fun to talk to you. Um, as people who listen to the show know, kind of the the general idea here is uh, really, it's that I talk to interesting people, and they are interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, we we sort of have this general framework of you know, you know, let's talk about making and let's talk about learning. And usually at this point in the show, we kind of throw it open and say, "Hey, James, what are you? You know, what's been going on with you in the in the making and learning world?" And then we talk about whatever that might be. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw it to you if you feel like introducing yourself at all. Feel free to do that. But we can also just jump straight into your adventures in making learning really it's up to you so uh so go sounds good yeah, yeah. i mean i you know joining before uh, when you invited me on the podcast i was kind of like wow you've had you know you've had paul and tim that we both work with and and they're always showing off you know these like amazing things they're working on <laughs> and i'm like well what, what do i spend most of my time making and at the end of the day it really is Kevl, like it's the company mm-hmm. we both work at and that yeah. we've been building together and, and people like Tim and Paul and a bunch of other great people. And, and like you said earlier, like my company, but I think of it as like our company, like I founded it, but you know, everybody here has, has ownership. Um, and I really, I think that's where I, especially as we started to grow. So like as a little context, I think when you joined, you were probably, you know, we were like sub 20 people. Oh yeah. It was between 12 and 18, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Like something in that range. And so, you know, when you're that size, yeah, you can kind of coordinate everything through Slack. Like, I don't even remember if you reported to me or you reported to somebody else, but it was like a fairly like flat structure. Yeah. And now we're like 70 plus people. And I now feel like I'm kind of like what I'm making is like trying to figure out like, how do you make this company from like an organizational standpoint? to, you know, really get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And like the same, you know, like the title of the podcast, like how do we, how do we as a company learn and, and make stuff, right? right? Like that's, that's the key thing we need to do. Yeah. I mean, I, when I've, I, so I've been involved in interviewing people because as, as you might imagine going from 15 ish to 70 ish people in uh, less than five years since I started, you know, we've grown a lot. We've hired a lot. We've done really well in hiring. I, I think that's the place where we've been a combination of lucky and good. Anyway, a thing that I comment on is that um, uh, I, I think we've sort of been appropriately um, uh, uh, cautious, afraid, might might not even be too strong of a word, about growth, right? Like, because there's these critical numbers. This the They're called Dunbar numbers, where when organizations reach them there's a phase shift needs to happen and one of the one of the important ones that i've seen at least in my career is around 15 people because 15 people is you talk to everybody every day 
and 25 people is that doesn't make any sense. And then another one is 40 people-ish, where it goes from, you know, everybody effectively works for the CEO to not everybody can work for the CEO. And it's probably even a little bit short of 40, but, but right around that number. And I've actually seen plenty of companies that have like smashed into that 40 barrier and failed to break through it. Like they, the organizational complexities, um, you know, sort of defeated them. And it's been really satisfying to me to see us both progress as we went towards that number to be really like cognizant of that. We could, we could make some bad mistakes and to see us successfully transition through that. Because in my opinion, we do have an organization that while not perfect has successfully made the transition past 40 where it still works like silly things for the most part are not happening. So um, anyway, so it might be, I know it's a lot of words for me, but I'm actually really interested to hear your perspective on what it was like from where you sit to, to make that happen and, uh, and what you've learned. Yeah. I think that for me, like one of the big things I learned was early on, you know, I would hire people and then have people report to them, you know, hire people to, to run a group or run a group of people. But I did a really poor job of giving up control. And I think anybody listening to Campbell would probably maybe say I still have a problem with that. But I think <laughs> I've got I think I've gotten better, uh, you know, overall. And, and I think the big lesson I learned there was really hiring, really trying to hire people in areas who were dramatically better than me in that mm. given area. Right. So I think like there was a big shift at at Kevl when it went from either me managing the engineers or being very, very involved in like the day-to-day of engineering work to bringing in our friend, Tim, um, you know, to, to run the engineering group. And Tim knows way more than me about that. He's a better architect, coder, engineering manager, woodworker uh, than, than <laughs> I am. And, and like, I think that was like a big point of like leveling up where, you know, it's like I used to talk to every engineer before we hired him. And I got to the point and it was like, well, if, if Tim and Craig and, and Paul and some of the other great engineers we have here are, are talking to these engineers, like, what, what am I going to bring to the table here? And that was like a good realization. Like, I think at that, when companies like stumble at that, at that 40 number, I think a lot of times it's because the CEO like won't, won't relinquish control. Mm. Like won't, won't say like, oh, I trust, I trust these people to make the right decision on hiring and bring in the right people and architect things the right way. And like, you know, dealing with like, you know, Paul, when he's talking about some of the stuff he architects, he just, you know, I like to think I was, you know, or am a good engineer, but you know, when he, when he gets into the weeds on stuff, I'm like, okay, I trust you. Like, let's do that. Yeah. I feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, I'm curious, you know, usually on the show, we talk about, you know, sort of the, the making of, of physical objects, although, you know, s- software too, because um, you know, a lot of my friends are people that make virtual things. But I wonder if um, as you have developed this thing, uh, Kevl, this organization, if you've had any thoughts about ways in which it is similar to physical objects that you've made, you know, is it, is it at all like woodworking or is it something that doesn't really resonate? It's just a different thing. I think, I think what's interesting, like, I do think like the org, like in how you like design or build the org does feel a lot like, you know, architecting a, a software system or, you Mm -hmm. know, coming up with the plan of how you're going to build, you know, or I, you know, I rebuilt my deck, like how you're going to rebuild your deck, right? Like in a similar way, you're kind of trying to come up with these things that you're, 
you know, you're building something that you're going to be stuck with for a certain amount of time and you don't yet know all the edge cases and the things that are going to come up. Uh, and sometimes you end up, you know, like when building my deck, like ending up cutting some really weird jigsaw piece because you planned, you know, you planned how the boards were laid out wrong and, and mm -hmm. you do the same thing like in an org chart. Sometimes, you know, like there's a role that's kind of like a jigsaw piece where they have like five different responsibilities that seem, seem like an odd collection. Um, but I think like the biggest thing, like tying back to making the biggest thing I've noticed in, in like running a company and, and, you know, figuring out the organization and hiring people is the, is the real like delayed gratification of it and struggling with that as someone mm -hmm. who came from being like a software engineer, where I feel like as a, you know, as a software engineer or, you know, doing woodworking or working on my deck, you know, you get some instant gratification, right? Like you can, a lot of times you can like work on a bug, work on that for a day, get it shipped out. You log off your computer and you're like, I, I accomplished something today. The, the like support team was happy. Customer was happy. Great. Right. You get kind of like an endorphin hit or, mm -hmm. you know, you know, but when you're running a company, it feels like so many times it's like when we're doing a, a hire or making a change, you know, it can be six months or nine months before you know if you were right or if what right. you did had a good impact or a bad impact. And so I found like as I did more and more, as my job has like stepped more and more back from, you know, writing that line of code, that's when I started doing more and more stuff around the house with you know, uh, like I redid my deck or I've been, yeah. I've been, you know, demoing my garage. That's a little more destruction, but it still feels good. Um, <laughs> you know, the, those things that you do get that, you get that feeling of like, I wake up on a Saturday, I go and, you know, demo out a big part of the kind of old cabinets in the garage. I start to think about how do I, you know, how do I want to rebuild these, but you get that like instant satisfaction of like, I did something today. And I think that's like a big shift for people when they move, if they move from like individual contributing to, more management is that you don't get that, that kind of immediate satisfaction of like doing something concrete. Yeah. So this is really interesting uh, for a, for a couple reasons. Um, one is you're far from the first person I've, I've heard say, yeah, you know, I really enjoy uh, management. I'm glad I made the transition, but I miss um, engineering per se. And I don't know that I've ever, heard anybody say that it's the immediacy of it like the timelines that are a key piece so that's an, an interesting piece especially because as you were saying that when you started talking about it i my brain actually went in the opposite direction and i thought about all the times that when i'm making something i'm impatient you know uh and like i'm like oh i gotta my shop is a mess right now because i go in there i work on something I set the tool down and then I work on something else and I set the tool down rather than like stopping to like put it away or finish what I'm working on. Um, so that's interesting. And then the other piece that we've heard from a lot of people on the show is that when they go and make things at the end of the day or on the weekends or during not work, it's important to them that it be different, right? That like a lot of us that are a little... Uh, long in the tooth, you know, like we've been doing software for a while. We um, we do something that's not software, and it's important that it be not software. Um, and so I just wonder whether you could comment on any of that. Like, um, you know, do, do you find that it is the the making of things it, it that that it is the 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 fact that it is not the building of a company that's important, or is there something else to it? If that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I've I've actually started playing around 
you know, writing some code, not for, not for Kevl. You guys won't let me do that anymore. <laughs> uh, but like on, on the side, like my daughter's been, been learning to code and, and we were kind of learning Rust together mm. and it was really fun. Like we were, you know, I was playing with Cloudflare workers and like spinning them up and seeing if I could get Rust to run in them. And, and, and I actually found that really satisfying just, you know, because I guess on my day to day, like I don't, I don't code anymore. So it is mm. very, very different from what I do. You know, I think on my on my time off, it's like the last thing I'd want to do is go, you know, manage a team. Mm. Actually, this came up recently with uh, some friends of ours who we would play board games with. And and I, you know, they wanted to play one of these like cooperative board games. And I was like, I have zero interest in this. I'm like, you know why? I'm like, this is what I do all day long is talk to a bunch of other people about how we accomplish a goal. And <laughs> And then like <laughs> argue about if it's the right way or the wrong way. And then we kind of find out if it was right or wrong. Oh, I'm like, that's if, hilarious. I'm like, if I'm going to play a board game, I want to play one where I get to make every decision. I own every outcome <laughs> and I get to either beat all of you or I get to lose to all of you. And oh, like, that's my only interest. <laughs> I love that. You know why? The One of the reasons I love that is because I think there's this um, mistaken uh, view or suboptimal view anyway of the CEO as being the, the decider of all things and the fact that you that you see like being the one person in control of all the decisions as being the opposite of what you do every day is it, it speaks very well of you as a leader I think but it's also just uh, kind of funny in the juxtaposition with the stereotype. Yeah, I'm probably a you know a pain in the ass to play cooperative games with too, because there's probably times where I'm you know acting like the CEO at work versus <laughs> a you know a, a uh, equal member of, of a team. But you know I, that is how I try to think of myself anyway, right? Like I I think even at work, like I'm not trying to hand down like this is every you know I make every decision because then usually doesn't work out very well. Yeah, um, I mean I won't spend too much time, you know. Uh, kissing up here, but I will say that I do brag to um, pretty much everybody that we interview um, that, you know, Kevl is an organization where um, every, it's very humane actually is the way I put it, right? Like, you know, we have this, we have this bill of employee bill of rights, which, you know, is just down to you. Like you get credit for this. It's, it's awesome actually. And one of the various tenets that kind of embedded in that is everyone is an adult, which, which really is about respect. Right. And so you can have an opinion different from James and um, it doesn't mean that we'll do what you say, but it does mean that you will be listened to. <laughs> but I really do think that like you've done a great uh, job in creating an environment where um, it, it genuinely is like that. It really is like cooperative, collaborative and, and, and fun to work in uh, for that reason. Yeah, and I, and I, but I think it does. It kind of goes back to the making part, which is like when I was starting the company. One of the things I thought about was like I want I want to build a company that I want to work at, not as CEO, mm. but like as an employee. Because you look at a lot of companies where you know there's like a caste system almost, right? Like the, sure. the CEO and the executives do this, but then everybody else has this, and and like I've always pushed to to totally stay away from that. Uh, and I think like even to this day, I feel like my only executive privilege that I exercise is like I can't stand filing expense reports. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we have I have somebody do that for me. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if I you know, when I've worked at companies like it was, you know, you just want to be treated like an adult. I remember, yeah. I remember there was a company I went to as a software engineer one time and they were kind of a more traditional company and you had to clock in and out. 
as a software engineer. Mm. And I'm just like, really? Like this is this is really what we're doing. Or there's another one where you had to wear you had to wear like a, a suit or not a suit, but you had to wear a tie to work every day. And I'm like, this is just absurd to me that we're not just treating people as adults and saying, look, you know, you're coming to work. You should, you know, be presentable, but like giving people dress codes for for how engineers come to work. It also made it really hard to recruit engineers since sure. most engineers don't know how to tie a tie. But <laughs> uh and I think actually for that job, I, I had to, I might've had to Google it. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's just a, a key thing of like how, you know, what, uh, you know, what kind of company do I want to work at? And I think that's how like, that's how we all, a lot of us build stuff in our spare time too, right? Like you're building something that you want, that you're going to yeah. use. Um, so I think it's really the same approach taken to, to building the company. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, uh, so you, you mentioned, but you mentioned something, um, you, you learning to, or, or not learning to, but, um, teaching your daughter to program. Um, how old is she? She's 13 now. Okay. I actually have a 13 year old daughter too. Um, and I did spend some time with my older daughter and to some degree with the younger one, uh, when they were both considerably younger, I actually often thought that, um, when they got older would be a good time to start to tackle, you know, we were doing scratch and, um, whatever this other, some of the other sort of visual programming languages were. Um, how has that been? And, and did you go into it with any kind of a plan or was it, did she ask for it or was it your idea or how's it been going? Yeah. You know, I never tried to really push it on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I think that, you know, sure. Like coding is a very good skill to have. Like we've all, we've all experienced that firsthand. Um, but I also didn't want to like make it something like they had to do. Um, but she actually got interested in it, I think, just because she, you know, she loves a lot of these like simulation games and mm. and and things like that on Steam. And, you know, she knows, you know, what we do and, and she understands that, you know, uh, kind of the role of technology. Uh, she's really kind of, you know, it's, it's she she thinks about the future in a way I don't think I ever did as like a 13 year old. You know, she's like, well, I want to make sure I have a good career. I want to make sure that, you know, I can make money. I want to understand you know, how all of this stuff works. Wow. I feel like at 13, I was like, you know, just trying to figure out how to get to like the next part of Final Fantasy or whatever. <laughs> right, yeah. <totally. laughs> um, and so, yeah, she asked about like, she asked about Cody and I was like, well, what is it? Like, how does it work? Like, um, and then we had tried like, like I'd pointed her to some like the stuff like Scratch like before mm-hmm. and, and it didn't really like take off. But now I think she's a little bit older. Uh, she was really interested and, and I thought, you know, like, I'm not going to try to, you know, the initial instinct, I think for a lot of people is like kind of web technologies. But whenever I think about that, I'm like, there's so much stuff going on here. And I think back to like, you know, how, you know, like, how do you learn in the most like pure way, like picking, you know, a language that you can just run stuff in the console. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I had been like kind of going through the rust book online. And so I thought, Hey, like, you want to do this? And she was like, sure. So we just got her, got her laptop set up. Um, she started reading through the Rust book, you know, would bring her laptop down. And, you know, the first time, right, she's like writing the instructions into the, into the code block. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. You got to take these out. And, uh, and she's in, kind of moving along. And then over the summer, we actually signed her up for a, uh, there was like a code camp uh, locally where she was going to learn. She did a bunch of stuff in Python, uh, mm-hmm. which is maybe a better language to learn at first than Rust. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's been going well. Now she's since school started, uh, school started for us on Monday. So now that's kind of taking up more time. I'm not sure if she'll have as much time to spend on it. Sure. 
but but yeah, I mean it's been it's been great, and I think you know the this is maybe a controversial opinion. Um, like I don't think just coding is like the best skill for the future. I think that coding with a combination of like <laughs> well coding with like this combination <laughs> of of other knowledge. Like mm-hmm. I just think you know like as we like build more and more services that make it easier and easier to to build things, you're always going to need a certain level of engineer to build those backend services, like what we do at Cavill or AWS Mm, and things mm -hmm. like that. But then more and more, I feel like if, you know, if you're, you know, a lawyer, there's going to be people who have a legal background, but then also know enough about coding that they can use a lot of the different tools out there, like APIs and things like that. And they're going to have like an unfair advantage because they know the context so well. Mm -hmm. So I've always kind of told her, I'm like, look, coding is something like you could focus your life on this if you really love it if you really want to dig deep and become a great engineer i think it's great um but i think like the idea of just like you know everybody should learn to code and they only know how to code i don't think is that valuable but i think what's really interesting about a lot of the new coders coming into the market like people who go to code schools is a lot of times they come from other areas right like they they were they had a profession before they have this knowledge and those can be some of the most valuable people at a company. Like if you're building something for doctors and you can have a doctor who turned coder, like that's probably the best person, even if they're not as good a pure coder, right? Because they actually understand the problem space so well. Sure. So it's interesting. We'll see what, I think she's really fascinated with business too. Um, so maybe some combination of the two. That is awesome. And gosh, everything you said leads me like four more fascinating topics. I think we're going to need to, I'll, I usually say this at the end and it's because it's true, but I'll say it right now. We're going to have to have you back on James. Cause you've already like overflowed my buffer with things I want to talk about. <laughs> um, one of them is, you know, you use the word engineer. And so one of the things about Kevl that is, it's not unique, far from unique in fact, but it's certainly a little different than other places I've been is that we don't tend to use the words developer or coder very much. And certainly in our job titles, we use the term engineer. Um, now my education, I mean, I went to school, I effort to be an electrical, my degree is in electrical engineering and, you know, there's civil engineering and whatnot. And, and these disciplines are often seen as being pretty different from, um, what we do in software, but I really like the term software engineer. I think it describes what we ought to be doing, not, not necessarily what we do all the time. Um, but what we ought to aspire to, like the, the the discipline, is software engineering. What I mean specifically by that is that that there there that it is possible to take a more structured and thoughtful approach, and to understand. You know, we don't have materials the way that a mechanical engineer would, or even a, an electrical engineer is working with things that have you know physical properties. But to understand kind of the characteristics of things like networks and things like databases, that these are our materials, and that they can be engineered or that we should aspire to producing works that are works of engineering rather than works that are coded or even the term hacker none of these terms are bad i'm not saying that they are like they all have their their place but like the fact that we use the term engineering i think speaks to a philosophy that it if it wasn't sort of intentionally decided on uh is something that has emerged from our our luck and or skill in hiring like really good um, software people who then just sort of do a thing that is in this direction of what I think of as engineering. Does does any of that make sense? And is that I don't know if that term originated with you or if it's uh, something that you did explicitly or what. 
Yeah, no, it, it was explicit. Um, and I think it does make sense. And it actually, it's, it's funny, it comes up from time to time when when people talk about, uh, you know, like, like, are we hiring out of, you know, coding schools? Or are we, you know, why don't we have more junior, you know, mm-hmm. software developers? And, and I think it comes to the fact that like, what we do is hard, right? Like, we're building like the infrastructure that other people are building on, you know, we're doing things that are, you know, being called 10s and you know, 30,000 times a second yep. and low latency. And, and it really is, it's an engineering practice, right? Like it is, it is closer to engineering. I know some people get, you know, with engineering degrees, get, get upset when, you know, somebody like me with no degree calls themselves a software engineer. Um, but I think that, that there is like a difference there. Uh, and, you know, and, and that the, when I used to do consulting, you know, you'd, you'd meet a lot of, you know, people who were software developers, like they would do a very good job of, of kind of moving forms around on a page mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and we go in there and help to improve it because it could only handle five users at a time. Right. Because it was written with a, like a nasty ORM and was causing all kinds of contention and things like that. And Craig may or may not have cleaned up some of my code at Kevl <laughs> that was doing the same thing. Hey, that um, code got us a long way. <laughs> like I know I've, I know I've been the past said things like, Oh, this code, you know, and then something not complimentary, but uh, Hey, you know, it, it got us where we are. So. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think like when, it's funny when I look back. Um, I don't know that I was as much of a software engineer as like the people we hire uh, and that work at Kevl, um, because going back to that, like when I look at code, to me, what matters is like how much value do we deliver, mm-hmm. um, and which is important, but it's also important to say, well, how much can it scale, and can it continue to scale, and is it correct, and can it be maintained. Um, but yeah, like when it, when it goes to the engineering piece, like we just have to hire people who who have a different level of kind of discipline about how they build things than a company that's maybe building a, you know, like an internal company building a line of business app, right? And like I used sure. to go build those apps and, you know, they were usually over-engineered because they would hire some software engineers to build it. And it's like, look, like seven people at your company are going to use this app to enter in insurance claims. Right. Like, it doesn't need to have like all this different, you know, service oriented architecture and, and all these levels. It's like seven people are going to use this. Like you could literally just give them each a connection to the database and move on. Right. Um, and so like, I think that's the, you know, there are the, there's, you know, we have to hire people who, who are actually engineers. Uh, and I think that is a big difference. And I think we've tried to cultivate that. Um, I think it's gone well. Uh, I yeah. do think that like at some point it would be good for us to go to hire in more, more junior engineers and, and people out of code schools. Um, but, you know, as we continue to build kind of infrastructure services, it's just hard to, it's hard to find the place we can, we can really bring them in. Um, and especially in like our kind of culture where, you know, it very much is a lot of times you're kind of left on your own to make decisions. It's not, you know, here's your, you know, we don't have a scrum master that says, here's your two tickets, Craig, for this week. Right. You know, get those done and there's everything in there and then, and then you can push them to the next queue and the QA team will test them. Right. It's a little more ad hoc than that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That actually, so this is all, it leads back to the thing I just remembered that I wanted to ask you before, but I'll come to that in a second. So the, the thing that when you're talking about this reminds me, so I I started out as a, the very, very beginning of my career, I was an intern um, at a a company where uh, I was doing electrical engineering work because that's what I was studying. And it was a, it was a, a company that was building hardware, and, and so it was real engineering. I mean, I don't want to say software is not real engineering, but just I think you know what I mean by that. But uh, 
what was interesting to me when I think back on, on the rest of my career in software is there, there was a very clear distinction between uh, the technicians and the engineers. Um, and it's not that they, it's not that there was like you say, a cast system, not at all, that the, they were just good at different things. Like the designs would come from the engineers and the technicians for the most part would uh, build and repair them. And, and, and obviously at any good organization where you're doing that, there's communication back and forth and your technicians understand engineering principles and your engineers understand enough about how things get built to not make a thing that the technicians are going to look at it and go, this, this can't possibly work. It'll, it'll melt because it doesn't have heat dissipation or whatever the thing was. And I think um, when I think about that in the, in the context of software, again, like I said, I think uh, the term engineering is not a perfect fit, uh, but it is a, a wonderful um, thing to keep in mind as we think about what kind of software we're building is that there is a place for, um, for that split. Uh, maybe not a hundred percent, but like that some of the work is technician work. Cause I think one of the things that happens is that as developers, um, I'm not referring to any person in particular, but sort of broadly in the culture, there's this notion, there's this fantasy, this stereotype that, that we're innovating when we sit down to type in code that we are solving something big important and hard every single time we type and the truth is that's just not the case some of what we do is is technician work which is not to say that it's unimportant right like the technicians without them we never would have been able to build the things we build but but they weren't innovating they were they were solving a problem using a set of techniques that were known to work and i think that's an activity that in software we sometimes fail to recognize that that's what we're doing, but perhaps even substantial portions of the time. Um, like I have a, I have an API that I uh, support and maintain, and pretty much what it does is it accepts JSON and puts it in a database, and then takes it out of the database and turns it back into JSON. Now there are some hard problems that we've had to solve in order to sort of make that the kind of thing that lots of people can work together on and do in a reasonable way. But when it comes time to make a new API, it's really just technical work, right? Like how do we present this data? as json accept it as json and stick it in the database nothing wrong with that but i think um sometimes we lose sight of that split and i think that comes back to to what you're talking about right like where we are we are recognizing um somewhat implicitly and somewhat explicitly that uh the important things right now have a lot to do with engineering but that technical stuff is also going to be important to us and may be important in a different way when we're 250 people than when we're 70 people. Does that kind of make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, it's actually one of the big signs I think of, of seniority, like in an engineer is that there are a lot of engineers that, like you said, they, they, if they are given a problem, they immediately assume this is a really hard problem and how do I solve it? And they make it from really scratch. complex, right? Like <laughs> yeah, they, they so, say yeah. like, Oh, like, well, I don't know that we can trust these, these, you know, these APIs and these tools that are out here, like, you know, I don't want to use Kubernetes or Docker, like I'm going to build my own, like we need to do that, right? And that's, that's always something that happens a lot of times in, in software development and, and software engineering is that, you know, we can make problems harder than they need to be. Yeah. Uh, and like, and like not look at like the simple way to solve it. And, and I've, it's funny, my, so my grandfather was a uh, engineer. He kind of designed like heating and cooling systems, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for like big high schools and things like that. Uh, but he was always my favorite to work with around the house. Like he would come down to help my mom out and, and fix stuff around the house. And I'd be like the, 
like the gopher, right? Like I just tag along and mm. like hold, hold things for him. But he always had this knack for just fixing things with never replacing them. Like he would not buy a new thing. Like I remember <laughs> as I got older and I was like helping, you know, kind of reversed and I'm helping him and I'm like, oh, like the lock is, you know, the, the knob to this door is kind of funky. I'm like, I can go get another one for 20 bucks at Home Depot. And he's like, no, hold on, let's look. He's like, no, look, if we put a spacer behind the screw on it, like it fixes it, right? <laughs> like, and, and it's like, he didn't want to make the problem harder. And I wonder if that's just from the seniority, like maybe the engineer of like, like I've dealt with the really hard problems of like how to sufficiently heat and cool a, a 3000 person high school. And, you know, this solving, you know, solving this, this lock problem, it's like, let's, let's not make it a harder problem of replacing mm. the whole thing. Like I, I know there's a small way we can do this. Right. Uh, and I think that is like, that's just something that comes along with like the seniority and, and have seen, seen enough stuff as an engineer that you don't like, not every problem is a hard problem. Like some right. of them are really easy, but sometimes if you give the, you know, it's almost like the middle ground, right? If you give a technician, you know, a simple straightforward problem, they will solve it simply and straightforwardly. If you give them a really hard, gnarly problem, they will probably solve it like kind of in a naive way that that runs into problems. But if you give a, you know, kind of mid-level engineer or somebody in the middle, you can give them a simple problem and they will make it hard. Right. They will <laughs> they will build their own like dependency injection framework or something to like build, you know, the API you talked about, right? They're like, well, what if in the future we don't want to put it in the database and we want to put it yeah. in S3 or we need to send it to the other side of the world, like how do we put a messaging queue in between these things? And it's like, guys, like JSON in, put in the database, bring it out. Like that's right, all we're we done. Need, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. That's uh yeah. So the, so and this kind of um also touches on the thing that I uh, that that I forgot earlier that I want to talk about, which is um which is leadership. Um I don't remember if we've talked about this on the show before or not, or if I've talked to you about it before or not, but um, this would be super interesting to get your take on. So I'll spew my um, little, you know, half-baked thoughts and you can you can tell us what you think. So I, I think that um, it's really interesting to look at the military. Um, and, and this is in a specific way. To be clear, I never served. So like, I don't have inside experience here. But one of the things that I think is true is that the military has this distinction between um, the non-commissioned officers, so this would be the ranks up to sergeant, um, and then you have the 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 officers, right? The commissioned officers, so lieutenant and up. And again, I've never served, so I'm maybe getting some of the details wrong, but I think the broad outlines hold. Um, and what's interesting is that if you talk to people in the military, they will tell you that that there's leadership at all levels, right? And what's really interesting to me is that. Um, you have this strict hierarchy, right? So the most junior lieutenant straight out of uh, college outranks the most senior sergeant in the army in the sense of, you know, being able to issue orders. But it's more subtle than that in that the sergeant major of the army, which I believe is the highest NCO in the, in the army anyway. Um, like if you had a, you know, fresh faced lieutenant, uh, you know, 22 years old she's straight out of college although she may um she may be able to issue those orders in truth it actually goes the other way and the sergeant is going to phrase uh suggestions in a way that are not really suggestions because because they have so much experience and 
and that those tracks are separate in the military. In other words, that you can progress your career in the NCO track or in the officer track. And they're different things. And, and sometimes I think about that. Again, it's not perfect, but I think it's an interesting analogy because, you know, in classic software, you were referring to some of this stuff earlier, like wearing a tie or whatever. Like there's the whole, you know, up or out, right? Like where, you know, you become the most senior engineer and then you become the most junior, you know, middle management, right? And how that's not really a great idea, but that, but that leadership exists at, at all levels. And I think this is something that we've done a pretty good job of at Kevl. I think in part because the organization is, um, so, I mean, we're definitely not the military, right? Like we're not solving the same problem and, and, you know, we don't have like strict hierarchy or, or like, there's not a lot of orders being issued or whatever, but like there are managers and there are, um, uh, individual contributors um, some some blurry lines at the size we're at right now, but I feel like if you're an engineer, that you can keep going, that you can you can advance your craft, um, and that that uh, it is important, even if you're an individual contributor, to be thinking about leadership. How do you provide leadership to uh, to those around you, to those in general with less experience? But I think it's not always that simple. Um, so all of which is a bit, I guess, a little bit unformed. But I guess what I'm really asking is, you know. How do you, how have you, how do you view leadership and how have you tried to shape how leadership happens at the company in particular around this, um, this notion of there being sort of different categories of jobs? Like you have management, that's clearly often, it's clearly a leadership position, but is there leadership within the individual contributors? Uh, How does that relate to this notion of engineer and technician aspects of the job? that kind of thing. I, I hope you can see how I, I kind of blurred those together and didn't do a good job of explaining it, but they're, they're related in my mind. And I wonder if you agree. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. Cause I totally think that in the past, I remember, I remember a couple of times companies I worked at where, you know, there was a really good engineer, right. You know, been doing it for 15, 20 years and, and they wanted to make more money, right? Like they wanted to move mm-hmm. up. And, and so they would get promoted to be an engineering manager and then their job was instead of you know solving this company's hardest problems and doing an amazing job at it, their job was doing one-on-ones and working on development plans and you know sitting in meetings with other development managers. And they weren't good at that, sure. right? Like it, it, they weren't good at it, but they they wanted to make more money and they wanted to you know move up in the organization, so they would take those promotions. And and they you know were usually unhappy and they usually didn't do a very good job. And, and I think like at some point in the last, like, I don't know if it's been the last 10, 15 years, like the industry as a whole, I think has realized that like it is a, you know, there needs to be a dual track mm-hmm. and that if you are going to be an amazing software engineer and you just want to continue to be an amazing software engineer, like there should be a track for you where you can continue to advance and make more money and, and get more options and things like that, as opposed to like having to go into management as like the next step. Um, right. And I think like the culture, like, you know, I think at Kevl we've, we've done this, but I think largely in the industry it's happened as well, where, you know, you start to notice that senior engineers actually make more money than engineering managers. Now, I think mm-hmm. on, you know, on, as a whole, right. Like if a, like a very senior principal engineer. Um, and I think that's because people have recognized that, you know, engineering manager is a, is a different role. It's not an advanced, it's not on the, to the track of, of being an engineer. Right. Right. There might be engineers who do want to go become engineering managers, but it's not like this logical track from engineer to engineering manager. 
and I think from like the military, I think it does it does track really well, right? Because you can have you can have cases where you have really experienced software engineers, you know, 20, 30 years experience working for an engineering manager who's been doing it for three years, right? Mm-hmm. Which it seems a little bit awkward, but that engineering manager is gonna say, like, my job is to to have you not sitting in this this cross functional meeting that you don't need to be in or, you know, I'm going to be, you know, or, you know, I'm going to do the one-on-one and I'm not going to be telling you how to be a better engineer. Right. I'm going to be asking you like what's slowing you down and Mm. give you the opportunity to say, Oh, it's this other team won't, you know, they're, they're behind on X and you're like, okay, let me go help you with that. Right. And so it does kind of flip it. It flips it a little bit. And I do think it's like a big part of leadership is just trying to think of it as, you know, kind of the idea of like servant leadership um, which I think, you know, in, in, uh, I don't know if it's like this in the military, but I think like the best organizations, the, the leaders are really thinking about how am I enabling the team, right? Like it's like the engineering managers thinking, how am I making my engineers more efficient and happier and stick around, um, instead of saying like, you know, I'm the, I'm the one who's going to tell them everything they do. Right. You work um, for me, but the purpose of your work is me. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. But I think, and from the military, like, I think. Uh, like one of the things I think about a lot is, and I think we've tried to do this. We don't always do it, but it's one of the things I kind of aspire to, you know, is in the military, when you think about how they're, you know, coming up with plans and giving instructions and things like that, right? Like at the end of the day, they it will go down to the, you know, the sergeant and I'm not familiar with all the different ranks, um, you know, to say like, you know, the objective is to take that hill. And I think the way to do it is that we go around here or we go here uh, you know, most of my knowledge of this is from things like Saving Private Ryan. So I'm sorry if anybody's listening who knows a lot more we'll, about this. We'll, we'll take uh, it as an analogy. It's okay. That's a weird, that's an analogy. Uh, it's a loose one maybe, but we'll take there it. We yeah. Go. yeah. So, you know, like maybe the, you know, maybe the, the person in charge is helping come up with the plan of like, here's how we're going to take this hill. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the people on the ground all know that the objective is to take the hill. The objective right. is not to follow the plan. It's not to say, oh, we know we need to go to this river and cross that and come around the back, right? If they see an opportunity for a better way or if that way doesn't work, right? Or the old, you know, I think, you know, it started, you know, like Eisenhower or somebody, right? It's like the plan, you know, plans are great until they encounter reality. Right, no Uh, plan survives first contact with the enemy, I think is this. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yep, Um, or like I think the, the Mike Tyson one is more blunt, right? Like no plan you know, survives until once you get punched in the face or something like that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like, and so I think that's, that's something I try to think a lot about from like a leadership perspective is really making sure that we're, we're pushing down the objective, not the plan or the tasks. Mm. And I think that like, we don't, we're not always perfect at that, but at the end of the day, like when you do that, you really do empower, you know, good engineers or good testers or good, you know, any, anybody if they understand the objective, they can better contribute than just knowing the plan or just having the tasks. And that was one of the things that always frustrated me when I would work at companies and get, you know, sat down with, you know, here's your three JIRA tickets, like implement these objects. I remember I went to one job where it was like, here's a sequence diagram, like implement these things. I'm like, I have no clue what this is doing. So I guess I'm just literally, you know, like a like a code monkey, right? right? Like I'm just literally yeah. implementing what you've told me to implement. And honestly, I could write a program to, to implement this stuff better, you know, to take the inputs and do it. Um, but I think from the military, like that leadership principle of, uh, you know, being able to push the objective all the way down. And I think it ties back to kind of your, your Lieutenant, like Sergeant dynamic 
because sometimes you, you know, you need the more, you need a more experienced person who's actually going to go take that hill, right? It can't be a really experienced lieutenant that says, Hey, we need to take that hill and then send a bunch of, you know, privates out to try to do it. (laughs) Right. Right. You need somebody in there who has that experience, who maybe is even more senior than lieutenant. And sometimes maybe they disagree that we should take the hill, but once you know, once they agree on the objective that like this is the objective, you know they're going to work towards that objective. Um, and maybe it diverges from the plan, but that's not what's important. What's important is the objective. That at the end of the day, they end up with the hill. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I mean, uh, and I think it is something that um, you do a pretty good job with. I mean, I know that we're. I know that in this, I include myself in this, you know, cause I, like I said, I do, I feel like I have a leadership role in, inside the company as well in a, in a, in a d- different way, but it's still true. I think we're still learning what is required in terms of how we communicate objectives, you know, cause it, and the other thing is it's a moving target, man. I mean, like when we were, we were, I said 12, 15 people four years ago, well, obviously we moved through, you know, that to 20 and then to 30 and to 40 and now to 70 and you know, we're going to be a hundred and it won't be that long from now. And, and it, and at different sizes, different, um, uh, strategies are called for. And so like a part of the challenge is, you know, shifting, but I think, um, one of the things I've said to people is, uh, you know, uh, one of the great things about James is that he is an engineering CEO, uh, who, and I always stop at this point to say, and keeping in mind that generally speaking, when I see an engineering CEO, that that's a red flag. <laughs> right like i mean it's again i think you're you're not this way but like I, I really don't think that engineering ceos are often quite frequently they have a problem and the problem they have is that they're in love with technology they're in love with solutions specifically and i think this is what you're talking about um it's a, and it's a place where you do uh much better than that um stereotype is the is that you are not in love with particular solutions. If you, you might propose one, you might say, Hey, I think we need a new API that looks like this to solve this problem. And I'd say, well, um, actually we have an existing thing that if you just do this, it would work better. And you'd be like, Oh yeah, that totally achieves the objective. Let's, let's do that instead. So, um, is that something that you explicitly, um, seek to cultivate in yourself? Like the, 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 the um, cause I mean, I know you're an engineer and I'm an engineer too, and we have this in common and it's very easy to get, attached to the how do you is it just in your nature that you don't do that as much or is it something that you've worked to cultivate yeah i think i think i still actually do it too much where i uh i think tim maybe shields you from a little bit more (laughs) like but no i mean you see it too like i think i still think too often i come with a solution and not a problem and i think about you know i think just from like the concreteness of it and thinking like here's the api that will solve this problem and i know recently there's one where i'm like this api should solve this problem and you're like well it actually doesn't solve the problem yeah but the thing i'm, I'm like, saying okay. is that yeah exactly uh, but that's, that's where part. it is like the, that's where the it okay is okay part right yes, and, exactly. I, and i think that yeah and, and i think that like that's where it's really just been over time of running the company and like as i've stepped further and further back from you know actually writing code and things like that you know, I've had to learn my own limitations, but even, you know, not just on the engineering side, like I think that was pretty easy to say, you know, these, these guys are all smarter than me. Guys and gals are smarter than me. Um, But I think like from the product standpoint, you know, I think it's when I get to pair up with, with really good engineers and I'll come with a solution. And then a lot of times, you know, a good engineer will say, well, what problem are you trying to solve? Which is great, helpful for me. Cause then we talk about the problem and then sometimes we go round and round, you know, 
over time talking about how we could solve this in different ways to solve it. And sometimes we end up back at my solution, but more often than not, we end up at something that is better than what I came up with. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that's just like humility. And I think that's, you know, something a lot of CEOs, you know, aren't very good at, right. It's like, I, I don't have to be the one that come up with the perfect solution. You know, there's times I'll go talk to you or Paul or, or Tim or, you know, any of our other great engineers. And I'm really high on like what I've come up with and, and they will come up with something, you know, two to three X better uh, or know how to solve it in a way that I didn't even think about. Yeah. They, and they at the end of the day, like, <laughs> yeah, like, but like what I care about is like us being successful. Mm-hmm. Like I care about the company being successful, not, you know, me being the one that, that figured out how to make it successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that like, it goes back to, um, you know, I, I don't derive, like, I don't think successful code is like, that it's, or that it's good because I came up with it or that it's, it's good because it necessarily, you know, does a certain thing or is clever or is fast. Like to me, I think this is like the business part of it and why I gravitated that way is that to me, it's like the ultimate thing is, will somebody give you a dollar, Mm. right? Like that's, that's like how we've decided to measure most success in, in our economy is like, will somebody give you money for it? And so at the end of the day, I just look at like, if we can solve a problem and somebody will pay us for it, like that's the ultimate success of like what we've built. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem when we talk about like, uh, we haven't talked about like stuff like outside of work as much, but I think that's actually the problem I run into when I think about doing stuff outside of work and I think about getting more into woodworking or doing things, my mind is just suddenly like, okay, how do I make this a business? What can I build and how can I sell it? And what's the efficient way to do this? Oh, or wow. it just becomes very practical where like when I originally rebuilt my deck, it was largely because somebody gave me this really massive quote. And I thought, well, how hard can it be to just replace, <laughs> you know, 800 <laughs> boards? Cause it's, it's like this big deck and it turns out it's really hard. I probably should have just paid the people. Yeah, how long uh, did it but take I had, you? Uh, let's not talk about that. No, it was, uh, <laughs> no, no, it was, it was like three years yep. uh, or two and a half years. Um, and I enlisted various friends to come help me with it. Um, but Looks it was great, good, by the way. Yeah. Thank I you. don't know if you have any pictures. We do the, um, when we put the show up, we also put it up on YouTube and I put pictures on the uh, show notes page as well. But if you, if you have any pictures, you'd be willing to share the deck really does look pretty awesome. I think you should uh, share us a picture if you're willing. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely cool. find a picture. Right, cool. But then you you also know of all the other projects I have of the the workshop I'm trying to rebuild yeah. and things like that. But but yeah, like it, when it comes back to me, I think that the, one of the challenges with those things is that I I do tend to like relate things back to will somebody pay a dollar for this? Interesting. Uh, and and I think that uh, or like or more practical, right? Like when we talk about woodworking, like really what I do is now the, you know, all I've ever done is like carpentry, right? Like I have a like I'm doing it for the the end output, right? Like I'm going to build some shelves in this closet in my office and it's like, well, I'm going to build them because I don't want to like pay somebody else to do it. And I think it will be enjoyable to build them, but like I really want it building them because I want shelves in, in my closet. Uh, so it's very much like the output, not the experience that I'm going for. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting. And that's quite different to me. Like I, when I, do a thing. I, I mean, I, I've occasionally gotten the compliment. Oh my gosh, this is really good. You, sh- you could sell these. And my reaction is always, Oh my God, please do not make me bring money. Into this. <laughs> and so it's really interesting to me to hear you say that you have that, that impetus. I'm not sure we've had anybody on the show talk about um, that as a, mm, like a factor in their, in their creative or their making process. 
Um, do you think that's a positive thing? It's neutral. How would you characterize that? I don't know, I, but I think it's always been the case. Like even you know, I was thinking back to as a software engineer. You know, lots of people I know will go create you know a fun side project, right, or an open mm-hmm. source project, or they just want to tinker with something, right? Like like Dave on our team who has like a you know written like an open source language for playing music, yeah. closure. Like to me, I every side project I ever did, it was kind of like, okay, how am I going to turn this into something that makes money? And and it's interesting because it's not that money like guides my life. Mm-hmm. I'm not you know like I don't you know I don't look at it as like I need to make money to yeah you're not to like do that. certain things or like or like you know get as rich as possible. Like, right. I just think that to me, it's always been that's the 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 metric of success, and it's not about having the money to spend it. It's about like this is a way to prove that it's like providing value to people. So validation, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Right, like it's like how to validate it. Right, is is that you can you know create money from it. That is interesting uh, because I think the place where I go that might be similar, and I think a lot of uh, developers go, is it's not money; it's attention. Right, like here I am. I'm making a podcast, and I don't. I, I say things like I don't care if we have 10 listeners or, or 10 million, but I wouldn't object if this show had suddenly 150,000 listeners. I, we're definitely not there right now. Um, I mean, so like, you know, like, why am I doing it? Right. Cause I, I'm doing it because first of all, I like talking to the interesting people we have, but like, why, why not just record it and leave it on a hard drive? Why, why do the extra work to put it out on the internet? Why do people, make a thing and then, you know, put it up on GitHub. Like, why are they sharing it? And I think, I think it might be similar in the sense that attention is the currency of those types of efforts. Um, and yeah. that's a fascinating thing to think about that you have it per- perfectly legitimate. And that's not criticism whatsoever that you've used, decided that attention in the form of somebody being able, being willing to part with, money like that i mean that really like it's one thing to say i downloaded your open source project but if you want to really prove that somebody wants your stuff like make them give something up <laughs> right yeah yeah no exactly and i think that and i don't know you know like we're going to turn into a uh a therapy session here it's like I don't, I don't know where that uh, <laughs> it's my show we can talk about uh, yeah i don't you know i just like and i don't know where that necessarily came from but but it's definitely the case right and i think like you know i've looked at you know when i talked to other engineers like back when we were doing side projects you know they would they would measure success by like the github stars sure and i'm like i'm like that's useless right like uh, you know like if, like if i was running this podcast right like i'd be like thinking okay yeah so if we get to this number of people who could sponsor this Right. Like, how would we get a sponsorship? And then once we have that sponsorship, like, that's money coming in. And that means, like, we've been successful. But that's not... So, James, did you just volunteer to become my business manager? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's set some some goals here. Okay, okay. (laughs) We'll talk about it offline. We'll talk about it offline. Uh, But, but yeah, it's funny. Like, that's that's just the way I think. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know where that came from. But it's it's definitely, like, I think it's why I have... I struggle more with, with doing things just for, like, the pure pleasure of doing them mm-hmm. and and i think it's why even when i play games and things like that we talked about board games earlier but the same with with video games and things like that like they need to be competitive in some way like there needs to be and maybe that's where money comes back to just like competition um but they need to be competitive in some way and not 
and yeah, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I do them just for the pleasure of doing them, uh, which is also a problem when I get into stuff, right? Because it's like if I'm going to do something, I think about how do I, how do I be the best in the world at this? And a lot of times, it's not going to be the case, right? Like I'm going to learn to sure. play guitar. Like the window is past where yeah. I can be the best in the world at guitar. <laughs> I hear you there. Yeah. Um, God, it's super, super interesting, and I think we could keep going, but I noticed that we are coming towards the end of the time block of time that we have um, allocated. I do always like to leave room. Um, well, first of all, we have a final question I want to ask you that I warned you about earlier that our listeners are probably already know about, but I always like to leave room at the end of the show and say, okay, well, um, I would love to continue talking about many things. You've brought many things to my mind that I want to keep digging on. But, uh, before we go, is there anything that you think, uh, we need to talk about? And it's fine if not. And it's also fine if there's something, but you think we should talk about it next time. Because like I said before, definitely have to have you back on, but uh, before we go, anything you want to uh discuss before we sign out um no nothing nothing comes to mind yeah all right awesome cool um well then we will jump to our last question which uh as longtime listeners well as long as they can be anyway for a podcast that's only been around for a couple months will know is uh, a piece of advice i ask you for a piece of advice and uh this can be anything anything from advice you've been given advice you like to give advice you just simply like but i want to hear what you have to offer in the way of advice so this is this is really gonna this is kind of funny now because I I this is a quote I like to use um, it's a Seth Godin quote and you'll I think it'll tie back to the conversation we were just having which okay. is funny because I picked this you know I, I realized I would do this when you gave me a heads up with a question um, which is from the book The Dip which is a book I read usually about every year um, and it's kind of like it's basically like should you quit is is the is how the dip works huh. and one of the quotes from it is is quit or be exceptional, uh, averages for losers. So it's a very opinionated point. Um, but something that I think the dip is a really good book for, for people to read and to think about is, is just when you're a lot of times we have momentum in doing something and we get caught up in that momentum and it's really hard for you to, to say like, I'm going to take the loss, right. Or I'm going to, you know, sell this investment that hasn't been working out. Like people want to hold on to make it successful. Um, and it applies to lots of things. And the dip is like kind of presents this framework, um, but it can be still down, it distilled down into kind of, you know, either can you be exceptional at this, you know, otherwise quit and find what you can be exceptional at. Um, and so it's probably why I have a hard time learning guitar because I don't feel like I can be exceptional at it. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, that's the, that's the thing I'd, I'd, uh, I'd leave everybody with. Awesome. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I feel like um, we could do a whole show on how that applies to the get smarter of get smarter and make stuff right. Like that is definitely about um, being on an upward trajectory. And I think there's some something to dive into there, but we will leave it there because I know that you have to go and I've already kept you past time. And I super appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, James, thanks so much for coming on. It was, it was really great to talk to you. Awesome. That was great to be here, Craig. All right. We're cool. We will leave it there. Hopefully something somewhere in here has inspired everyone else there to get smarter and make stuff. You've been listening to Get Smarter and Make Stuff. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Visit the show online at getsmarterandmakestuff.com. That's all spelled out, all one word. Go there to subscribe to and comment on the show, read the blog, view the gallery, and find a link to the Get Smarter and Make Stuff YouTube channel. Come on by. We're also on Twitter at Make Smart Stuff. If you enjoyed the show and feel like sharing with others you think might like it too, I'd certainly appreciate it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.